Good morning, everybody. Scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. If you have your Bible, you can open it now. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. There's the words of Jesus. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we're in our series on the Jesus' great sermon on the mount. And this is his teaching of what the world, this world, should be like. And it's also his declaration of what his kingdom is like and what it will be like. So we're in our, our second week of Lent. That's the, the time of preparation leading up to Easter. And the, the great message of Jesus as he was heading towards Jerusalem and heading towards his cross was he was saying, this is how my kingdom, this is how his kingdom was breaking in. The kingdom of heaven was breaking in to earth. This is how he is going about or was going about setting things right in his life his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he was dealing with our great enemies, that's sin and death. And as our substitute, he offers us free grace. He offers free grace to every lost sinner. He invites all, everyone into the family of God. And he fills those who trust him with his own Holy Spirit. And in doing so, he begins the process of restoring us to wholeness or restoring us to peace, restoring us to the way things were meant to be. He's coming, he's coming into the world, he's saying, as he's heading towards Jerusalem, he's coming to make all things, even creation, all things new. That's the gospel or the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus and his kingdom is that his kingdom is breaking into the world through him and through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And, and that's why his kingdom is so different. One day, what Jesus is telling us is one day, the kind of society that he's describing in the Sermon on the Mount is going to replace the broken one that we find ourselves in. Can you imagine that? Just for a minute. On this cold Sunday, just for a minute, just imagine what it will be like when Jesus' kingdom overwhelms and eclipses the one that we find ourselves in now. Can you imagine there being the world being a safe place for the meek and the poor? Can you imagine a society without sin where there's no anger and no lust and no greed tearing relationships in society apart? Can you imagine a society where families aren't broken, where other people can always be trusted, where you can always be trusted? Can you imagine a society where we all know that our good father is going to provide all that we need so therefore we don't wake up and go to sleep Racked by fear and anxiety. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again to make all things new. And yet, as Christians, as believers in him, as followers of Jesus, we are already a part of that kingdom here now. In this passage that we just read, Matthew 7, 12, Jesus tells us, how the truth of his kingdom should govern our interactions with each other. And Jesus sums it up 
the, all the, the great rule for Christian behavior, he sums it up in one sentence, and we call it the golden rule. And most of us are familiar with it. But I, I think it's one of the weakest parts of our modern American Christianity. Most churchgoers, if we do a little poll on your way out today, most churchgoers could spit out what the core of the gospel is. Jesus died for my sin, right? We can tell people that they need to be saved. But the question that we're faced with this morning in this passage is do our lives, do our relationships, do our interactions with other people look significantly different the other people who are outside of the kingdom of God. Do our relationships, do our interactions with other people, do they look otherworldly? In other words, do they look like Jesus? After all, Jesus didn't say that people would know that we are his disciples by our Bible memorization. Though that's great and important. He said that they outside, the people who are outside of the church, he said, they will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. So if our love for others is weak, if our love for other people isn't amazing enough to draw attention for the people around us, if it doesn't look like Jesus brand kind of love, then our discipleship is deficient. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, famous passage, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Any of you have little kids that have gotten a noisy present for Christmas or your birthday? That annoying sound, they just bang it. The uncle who doesn't have any kids gives your kid a drum. Gives your kid something that you have to put batteries in and sings a song over and over and over and over again. If we have not loved, Jesus says, we sound like that to the people who are outside. Our society is dark and it seems to be getting darker, but perhaps a big part of the problem isn't out there because that's the kingdom of darkness. It's always going to be dark out there. Maybe the problem is that we sound like a clanging cymbal and a noisy gong to the people who are around us. Again, our text. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus opens this statement. He opens this sentence with the word so, or your version might say therefore. It's a connecting word. So or therefore, because of what I have already said, he's saying, now go and do this. And it's kind of unsure exactly what he's pointing to. Is he pointing to the preceding passage about ask and knock and seek and you shall receive? Or, or is he pointing back to something else? Or what we think he's probably doing is pointing back to the whole prior sermon leading up to this point. Because of all that I have said, 
Therefore, now do this. Or what he's saying is, this sentence is a summation of how the kingdom breaks into our relationships with other people. Because Christians, because you and I, if you're a believer, we are now a part of a different kingdom. Jesus' kingdom, a drastically different kingdom than the kingdom of darkness around us. Then we should look drastically different in the way that we treat other people. Jesus is pointing us back to the whole context of the sermon before. But the golden rule also follows Jesus' astounding promise of prayer that David preached for us last week. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. What What he told us is the father delights to give good gifts to his kids. And so if that's true, if we are, if we live in a different kingdom, and we have a father who delights to give his kids good things, then our natural response to the lavishness of God, the father pouring out his goodness to us should be to then turn around and seek the good of other people who are around us. Because we have a secret and unending powerful source that is seeking our good. Therefore, it should free us to then turn around and seek the good of the people who are around us because we are grateful and because we can't lose anything. Ever heard the statement? It's usually connected to somebody wanting you to give to their church. You can't outgive God. But it's true. Why? Because I'm, I'm giving in order so that God will give me more? No, because I can give freely, whether it's my love or time or attention or forgiveness or my possessions, because I know that the Father who owns all of eternity is standing behind me and is pouring out anything I need for me whenever I need it. And there is no limit to his love and there's no limit to his resources. So, Jesus is saying, so, therefore, in light of all this, we should act or live differently. So what does that look like? He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is a statement that you've probably heard over and over again. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard it in daycare, preschool, or elementary school. Because it's, a, it's called the golden rule. It's, I mean, it's kind of universal, but it's not, it's not just because of the influence of Christianity. The, the golden rule, this, this statement, was not unique to Judaism. It wasn't unique to Jesus. It was taught by Confucius. It was taught by the Greeks. It was a rule of conduct that was common to many wise people of many different backgrounds. But Jesus shows up, and in this sermon, and a couple other occasions, he, he says this statement, but he does something different with it. He changes it in a way that Confucius and the Greeks and the other people who came before did not do. He redefines our responsibility to each other. He redefines our responsibility to each other because up until this point, the golden rule was framed in the negative. This is the way that basically it was said in most of those cultures. Don't do to others what you don't want them, what you don't want done to you. Don't do to somebody else what you don't want done to you. It was a negative statement. If you don't, don't kick that person in the shins because you don't want them to kick you in return. Don't steal that person's donkey because you don't want them to steal your donkey. If you have a donkey, you don't want it stolen. 
Don't do this to that person because you don't want them to turn around and do it to you. But Jesus takes that negative statement and he turns it on his head into a positive statement and therefore redefines what our responsibility should be to each other. And he says this, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And thus he raises the standard and he redefines our responsibility. The picture he's painting is not only that we shouldn't do bad things to other people that we don't want in return done to us, but he says the picture is that we should be working for the advantages and the wishes and wants of the people who are around us. I'll say say that again. The picture that he's painting is that we as his followers should be working to the advantage and the wishes and wants of the other people who are around us. He's not just saying don't do the bad stuff that you, want done, that you don't want done to you, but he's saying act to the other people who are around you the way you would most want them to act to you. He's saying, look around you to the people. Don't just, don't, don't just not do bad stuff to them, but look at the people who are around you and look to fulfill their needs and their wants. And their wishes. Now, here's the beauty of this command it's an elastic command. It stretches across ages and personalities and cultures and relationships. It's always applicable. Because if he said, hey, seek to give your friend the donkey whenever they need a donkey, you and I would be looking and saying, not many of us have a donkey, and how do I apply that? But he says, no, seek to do for others what you wish. They would do for you. It's for strangers and neighbors and children and spouses and classmates. It's for everybody. It applies to friends and to enemies, to bosses and employees. Do to others as you wish they would do to you. It applies to business as well as to sports, as well as in church. Do to others as you wish they would do to you. The idea is not a reciprocal idea. It's not, hey, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll do to you as you want done to you as long as I'm going to turn around and you're going to do to me as I hope you'll do to me. He says, no, he doesn't place a qualifier on it. He doesn't say do good to other people who have done good to you. Do good to others as you expect that they're going to do to you. Do good to others and guilt them if they don't turn around and do good to you. He says, do good for others or do for others as you wish they will do for you. He raises the idea of what our and redefines what our relationships and our interactions with other people should look like. It's not just not reciprocal, but it is active. It's not just a response. What he's saying is that we as believers should be pursuing goodness for other people around us. We should be pursuing doing good for the other people who are around us. And he says, this is the way of the kingdom. This is my call to you as my disciples. 
do unto others as you wish they would do to you. It encompasses all of our life. Jesus calls us to love other people in the way that if that we, we the way we would want to be loved if we were them. John Stott said this, the Christian counterculture is not just an individual value system and lifestyle, but a community affair. It involves relationships and the Christian community is in essence a family, God's family. That means that we should be as believers with each other before we even get to anybody else. We should be actively looking to pursue goodness for the other people who are part of God's family. But also, we should be looking outside of God's family and with open arms pursuing goodness for the people who are around us, who are even far from God. Who don't like us who don't hold our value systems, that don't believe what we believe and worship the one and only true God that we worship, the people who don't deserve it. How are you doing on this? How's anybody in this room doing this? Stand up if you are knocking the golden rule out of the park. Even the best of us, if we were going to take nominations. Hey, take nominations. People of this room who are really knocking the golden rule out of the park today. Who, who would you put forward as fulfilling that? And if that person came forward, what would they actually say if they were to be honest about their own actions and their own motivations? I mean, how can we, how can I do to others exactly as I would want done to me? How can I love other people or care for other people as I love myself when every instinct in my soul cries out for self-preservation? You know that, the voice in the back of your head. If you give that, you might be without. If you care for them, they might take advantage of you. When every instinct within me cries out for self-exaltation. I really want people to do to me the way I want done to me. But I don't really want to turn around and do to them the way they want done to them. Hear that? The way they would want done to them. Because that's putting me in their shoes. What makes it so tough? That simple sentence that we teach our preschoolers, what makes that simple sentence do unto others as you would have them do to you? What makes that so tough? Especially if we could agree. Let's just do a thought experiment together. If we, if we could agree that if we, if every person in the world from this moment on began to live that kind of life, wouldn't the world be a better place? If everybody in the world from this moment on started to interact with other people the way they want to be interacted with, pursued good for each other, wouldn't the world be a better place? Wouldn't our community look far better? If that's true, then what stops us? Why don't we do for others as we wish they would do for us? 
think if we're honest, first of all, it's because it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to do to other people the way I would want done to me because that puts me on their timetable. And if I'm honest, I don't like to be taken off Randy's timetable. It's inconvenient. What? And also, other people don't act that way to me. Why would I act that way to them? That person at work is always, always taking advantage of me. That family member never stops asking for help. That friend is always needing a favor. And they never ask me if I need anything. They don't even ask me how my day is going. What if nobody else does? What if I seek good for the, my neighbors and the people who are around me? What if nobody else does it? What if I'm the only person who's out here doing good? And honestly, I don't think they deserve it. That's really kind of getting close to home. I don't think that person deserves for me to serve them the way I would want to be served or to do good for them the way I would want to have good done for me because I don't think they've done enough to earn it. I think the problem with most of us, many of us, is that we like being members of Jesus' kingdom. We like being recipients of free grace but we don't, other, we don't want others to be. We like receiving free grace from Jesus, but we want them to earn it. We want them to earn our favor. We are citizens of the new kingdom of Jesus, but we want to live like we're in the old kingdom. We think we like the idea of free grace, But what our actions prove when we live that way is that we don't really understand it. Because you see, if you claim to be a Christian, but yet you aren't willing to give free grace to the people around you, especially those who don't deserve it or haven't earned it, then either you don't know what you owed God or you don't know what you've received from him. If you claim to be a Christian, but you're not willing to give free grace to the people around you, even and especially those who don't deserve it, then you either don't know what you owe God or you don't know what you've received from him. That is a, because it is a big, far reaching command, but to the believer in Christ, You sense the spirit of God within you leaping a little bit at the idea of living a life of giving free grace to the people around you, especially those who don't deserve it. Some part of you, the the part that is redeemed by God, the, 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 the part deep in your soul, the spirit of God dwells, leaps within you because it's exciting to you because you can think about the possibilities. Think of the ways that you would be able to help people if you lived a life giving out free grace 
serving and caring for others the way you would want to be served and cared for. Think of how it would glorify the Father if you lived that kind of lifestyle. Think of how the people around us wouldn't be be able to understand the source of our life and actions without understanding that we are recipients of free grace in Christ. And therefore we give it out. We pursue goodness for the people around us especially. And even those who don't deserve it. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. For, Jesus says, this is, or your version may say, this sums up the law and the prophets. What does that mean? So, do unto others as you would have it be done to you. For, this is, or it sums up the law and the prophets. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying is the idea of how we should act towards other people isn't an arbitrary idea. It's based upon the revealed word of God. God has revealed his will to us. He's told us what is required of us. That that phrase, the law and the prophets, that's how the Jews refer to what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains uh, many things, history, It contains prayers, it contains songs, it contains prophecies, commands, corrections. But a sizable sizable portion of the Old Testament is what we call the law. It's instructions given by God as to how we are to live our lives, the law of God. And like I said, there's a lot of those instructions. The Jewish tradition holds that there are 613 commandments or laws contained in the Old Testament. 613 laws or commandments contained in the Old Testament. But all those 613 commandments, they they share a common root or a common source they all kind of grow from. It's the first set of laws that God handed down to the people of Israel through Moses. They came from Moses as he carried them down from Mount Sinai after meeting with God. They were written on stone tablets by the very finger of God himself. In a moment that was so holy that scripture tells us that the earth shook and the mountain trembled and quaked. There were clouds and darkness and lightnings around swirling around the mountain. It was so holy and so uh, incredible that the people of God hid their faces and they trembled. And they were told that if any man or beast even touched the mountain, that they would die. And when Moses came down and descended from the mountain from meeting with God, carrying stone tablets that the finger of God itself etched the laws upon it. As he came down, his face was so, so radiated the glory of God that it says that no one could look upon it. They had to put a veil or a piece of fabric over his face because the people couldn't look upon the face that radiated the reflected glory of God from that mountain. 
And what Moses brought down on those, those tablets or what we call the Ten Commandments. This was God's, this was our holy, awesome God's commands to a sinful, hiding, complaining people. And what he said was, he said, do these things and you will live. Do these things and I will be your God and you will be my people. You will be blessed. You will be my own special people. But if you do not obey them, if you transgress them, you will be cursed and you will be scattered. In the first half of those commandments, as we've been studying them on in our catechism on Sunday mornings, the first half of those commandments deal with our giving God the honor that he is due. Did you hear that? It begins with, you shall worship only God. And so the first set of commandments in the Ten Commandments were about our, our, what we owe to God. And the second set of commandments were about how we were to interact with each other, how we were to interact with other people. At one time, uh, a teacher came up and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment that's contained in the law? Remember, we have Ten Commandments that, Jesus, that, that Moses brought down, written by the finger of God himself. We have 613 laws and commandments throughout the Old Testament. And so the teacher asked him, what is the greatest commandment? I don't know why we would ask that question. It could be because we just seek understanding. It could be because we're trying to like weasel, weasel our way out. Of, just tell me what, just tell me, there's a lot of commandments. Just tell me one thing. I mean, give me one big commandment. And I'll see if I can do that one commandment. If it's the greatest, at least I can maybe do this one and, and hope I'm going to be okay. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus boiled down the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws. He simplified it in this one interaction with his teacher. But in simplifying the commandments, Jesus showed us the real heart that we should have. Did you hear that with those commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and your mind. And you shall what? Like your neighbor? Just do good for your neighbor? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, there's a line of measure laid down in God's law and it cuts and runs right through the middle of every single one of our hearts. It, it hits us at the core of who we are. He tells us what is re- truly required of us and that is love. True, loving others as myself kind of love. Not just in fits and starts, not just on occasion, not just with family or close friends or the people that we really like. Everyone, all the time, love from your heart, God with everything, and then your neighbor as yourself. Why does this kind of life, why does this kind of love fulfill the law? 
Because if you actively love others like this, you would do all that God had commanded you to do without even having to consult the manual. And more to the point, it's who God is. God is love. That means that his very nature, God's very nature is this self-giving, giving others first kind of love. But you won't love others freely unless you love God supremely. And if you love God supremely, you will love others freely. You won't love others freely unless you love God supremely. And if you love God supremely, you will love others freely. Do you see the love and the free grace of God that is offered to you? Does your heart feel the weight of his undeserved love and grace towards you? Do you understand all the all that the enemy had set against you in the court of heaven? All of your attitudes, all of your actions, all of your deeds. I mean, those things that nobody else knows about that you'd be ashamed to talk about. I mean, all those things. He's got the docket up there laid out before the throne of heaven. He had the whole argument laid out before you. And yet, but someone stepped in and offered you free grace and forgiveness and a peace with God and a clean white robe of righteousness when you did not deserve it. Do you see the free grace and the love of God offered to you? Do you see Jesus, the only begotten son of God? Do you see him become a man? Do you see him in his humility? Humbling himself, not grasping equality with God, but becoming like a man and living a a life of a poor peasant. Do you see even his interactions with the people around him, his love and his care and his grace as he's being insulted? As he's being forgotten. As the Lord of all creation is being dismissed by people who thought and considered themselves as wise teachers of his word. But yet he held his silence. Do you see his betrayal? Can you imagine what it would be like to be the son of God? To know the person who is in your midst is going to betray you, and yet you let him betray you. Sitting at a table and sharing bread and meat with a man who's going to turn you over. Do you see him in his meekness as he's mocked and tried? Do you see his subjection to pain and death? When we're told he could have called 10,000 angels. Now, do you see your face in the crowd? 
Do you see your face in the crowd calling out for his death? Do you see your face this very week? How you've ignored him, how you've shunned him, how you've hardened your heart towards him, how you've disobeyed him. And yet, do you see him? Do you feel him? Even now, at this moment, loving you, even now in this moment, forgiving you, even now in this moment, redeeming you, even now at work in you to make you whole again, do you see the love and the free grace of God in Jesus? Does your heart run out in love for him? Does Jesus in his love begin to eclipse everything else in your life is there it's there as it does as the love and person of Jesus eclipses everything else in your life there you find a freedom to love others freely to do good to others as you would have them done to you because you love God supremely and therefore can love them freely. I'm going to pray. We're going to proceed into communion a little bit differently this week. We're just going to, Tyson's going to come up and we're just going to, he's just going to play for a little bit. Give us some time just to, to pray and to think and have a time of confession. I'm going to pray this prayer of confession. I hope you will pray it with me in your hearts. And then in a, in a couple minutes, then the people who are serving communion are going to come forward. They're going to station themselves on either side. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, come and see the love of Christ for you offered in the broken body and the shed blood. And let that empower you to even today and as we leave here today to live a life that is seeking to do for others as we would have done for us because we've had done for us what we could not do for ourselves in Christ. And he is ever living and breathing to care for us. Pray this prayer with me, if you will, as we go into this time. And pray it in your hearts. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed, by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole hearts. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. For that, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways 
the glory of your name. May Almighty God have mercy upon us and forgive us our sins through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and strengthen us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit all our days. Amen.